host. I'm Joel Blackstock, and I'm here with uh, Peter Dunlap, or Peter T. Dunlap, as your as your website says, who is a clinical psychologist, also um, doing research and philosophy in the area of community transformation and spiritual leadership. So you're another Pacifica grad that we found. Did I miss anything or, or say any of that wrong? Let's see. Um, well, you use some words to describe me. I don't know that I would use, but I kind of like them anyhow. Um, and did you? Well, it's okay if other people call you a philosopher, but if you call yourself a philosopher, that's where you kind of want. You know, <laughs> that's my rule of thumb. You know, <laughs> I, I, I do have a degree in philosophy, and it it uh, I have stuck with the practice of study. So, well, who knows? Uh, I think that'll be for other philosophers to decide. In the meantime, it's okay for me to do it. You know, but unless you want to, you know, kind of have like a. Right. A neck beard and some sort of strange, you know, antiquated antiquated hat, and I don't, had I, you I don't come know. Ago, I would have had a beard. <laughs> <laughs> David Tacey has a quote in one of his books where he's talking about one of the students. He's like talking about different archetypes, and he was like, he was one of those people who uh, spoke with a strange accent, who he didn't ha come by honestly, and would wear, you know, red leather and robes. And you know, when I would speak in class, he would rub his beard and. <laughs> and like sigh deeply and earnestly it's just like you just have this palpable image of this person who's like well i'm a philosopher or a powerful magus or you know whatever is going on in that in that guy's mind that you were in your uh, you know philosophy class with and in, in college <laughs> I, I remember those type and i was uh, both intimidated and envious at the same time <laughs> yeah you, there is something that's kind of enviable about the that kind of confidence of just doing yourself i mean not no shade it's just uh i don't know there was one um there, when I was in uh, school, there was like a guy, you know, that always like w was trying to return to tradition or whatever. Of course, the traditions were not ones that he came from. And he had, you know, like thick uh, leather uh, pads on his, you know, it just looked like he, an approximation of, he was dressing like an approximation of what he thought people did at Oxford in the 1700s or something. And um, he, uh, it was kind of like a rainy day at Swanee or something. And he was like, oh, the good English weather. And it was like, you're from Ohio. Like, <laughs> But you know, I, I'm from Northern California, you know, um, other than th that being harder to be any further off the beaten path with what is happening in the world today. Uh, California is kind uh, of its own thing. And we are kind of our own thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, uh, and so did you, you, did you call me a Pacifica graduate? Didn't you, or uh, alumni, uh, did I say graduate? I'm sorry. I, you may I, was, I had gone through uh, a lot of times when we're trying to f find interesting people, you'll find a certain research institute or something that if somebody's a member, then their work's going to be interesting. So you're, you're trying to find good guests. But the Pacific alums was, I think, how I, how I found you. Or not alums, but uh, uh, faculty was how I found you. Yeah. And, and yeah, started I, to read about your work. I'm, a, I, I, I'm a, the co-chair of the clinical psychology program at Pacifica. And we have a we have a good time exploring a bunch of stuff and maybe we'll get into that some just now. Yeah. I'd love to hear about your work. Oh, uh, goodness. Um, well, mostly my work is as a clinical psychologist, um, where I work a lot with, uh, couples and uh, individuals. I help young adults find their calling. Um, and I'm really interested in the way in which we've, um, problematically developed our thinking to the neglect of our feeling. And so I do a whole lot of work helping uh, uh, people become rational mm -hmm. by reconnecting to feeling that feeling it, it, we, our rationality is dependent on really having access to a normal range of feeling. That's mm -hmm. one of the things that makes us able to you know, move around in the world and not bump into things too badly. Yeah, I, a lot of times um, when I am working with supervision candidates or, or doing a consultation group, you've got therapists that somebody says something that, you know, clearly, you know, is the voice of an inner critic or, you know, an oppressive voice in society or something that's not theirs, but they're doubling down on some position that's unhealthy. And the nat nature of the, the, the more cognitive therapist is to get into a debate club with them. And it's like, no, 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 that feeling's not coming from their brain. It's coming from their heart. If you just push that into their body and make them sit with that for a few minutes, they're going to realize that they don't believe that and then it feels icky. You know, if you debate them, then they're even more cut off from their body. They're even more dug in. You'll never get it. You know, just just take people at face value that they believe what they believe, even when you know that that didn't really healthy or not what they believe. And if you can push them into the psyche soma, their body will tell them something that, that you're not going to get to through their, 
through their ears and their brain. I like that strategy. There's some faith that it's really possible to have in each person and to help their best self come forward with just some kind, loving, very, very direct yeah, and so what you're you do the clinical psychology program there, um, which specifically is one of the I mean I think one of the last you know depth psychology you know uh, only universities around. Uh, it's an interesting place, and then you also have some other work you've done outside of that. Uh, do you mind tell, talking about any of the works that you do with kind of politics, transformation, creativity, community? Well, I, I come from a political family, and my my dad was a. Uh, very committed liberal progressive back in the 60s and 70s. I and saw your George McGovern button and 60s headband. That was that was pretty cool. You know, the picture of you and Braces. Well, you still got it. Yeah, this is a, I think this is a different one than in the picture you're referencing. Okay. Yeah. I in in my junior high school, I started a George McGovern for President Club and got in a little bit of trouble for it from the uh, principal. <laughs> but he was rather friendly and he he knew my family and my dad, and he let me off the hook. But he said, you know, um, I because you started the George McGovern President Club, some um, mother is knocking on my door, and she wants to start the uh, John Birch for President Club. And uh, <laughs> that, that, that was a different time back in 72. But <laughs> since then, I just yep. really see the way we, we liberals and progressives have um, really not known how to um, – been the narrative of our time mm. uh, and we've had a lot of success but right now we've had so much failure since really since reagan that since yeah. uh, his narrative about everybody for themselves has taken over and um we we live in desperate times in need of some larger narrative uh, a year ago president obama asked us what common story could we tell that would hold us all together and move us to the future and I think that's the work of depth psychologist is to learn how to tell the stories that would hold us together. Well, historically, you know, that part of the alchemical process of letting go, you know, dissolving something to get to the, that isn't working anymore to get to the true, you know, gold inside is not something that works very well politically, especially in America. I mean, crisis of confidence speech is, you know, what I thought of as the biggest failure, uh, you know, politically. And it's really just Carter being like, hey, you know, I don't know if our mythology works anymore maybe it does but could we all sit and wonder um if we need a new myth and no man we won't <laughs> stop so stop when, making me feel when, stuff when you sit and wait for a new myth uh, i think what happens is people get afraid because they they don't want to hang out in between stories and so that's when authoritarianism uh becomes welcomed we we welcome the aggressive uh, male-dominated type of authoritarianism that um, really uh, controls people from the outside. And so uh, in order to let some new myth arise, um, we actually have to remember the value of caring for one another and putting each other first. And that mm -hmm. comes with a level of sacrifice and duty that um, none of us quite know how to do well enough right now. And, and I think that's on all of us. Well, and I think um, you, you're saying it causes anxiety to have to wait for the new myth. You're also telling people that, you know, what they identified with in the past is not right, you know, which can be a huge opportunity for growth. It's hard to tell that to a patient in a room. You know, you have to creep around that for several sessions and maybe use a metaphor or a story or, you know, in order to make that something that the psyche can tolerate that isn't threatening and overwhelming and re-traumatizing, but it's a, the, the person can see it as an opportunity for growth. I don't know how you do that with 8 million people. You know, I, well, I, I barely know how to do that with one person in a therapy room. See, this is where groups become so very important and interesting because there are social change organizations that are working on this every day, all day long. There are hundreds and thousands and tens of, tens of thousands of really good people working on this from the left and the right. There's an organization called Braver Angels that has chapters around the country that sit people who are left-leaning and people who are right-leaning down at the same table and help them learn to talk to one another. Um, and I think there's a, uh, an opportunity for psychotherapists to get more involved such that that storytelling that we do know how to help one person at a time tell 
uh, becomes more accessible in larger group contexts. And I think that's part of the uh, the vision, the original vision of psychology by our founders. They really wanted to see psychology become the narrative used, the means used in every institution, whether they be political or religious or humanitarian, that by just by sitting down and talking to one another and finding our shared humanity, it really becomes possible to bridge the differences. Um, but it's going to take something at a more organized level, given the level of polarization that's dominating us now. Well, but what you just said is that you want people wanting to see psychology become kind of the future. And outside of somebody that, you know, has a very literal belief in um, some sort of religious practice or something they'd like to see society centered around, I think most people would agree with you on what that is. Where most people would fight is when you start to say what psychology is, because on an individual level, psychology is the class that I had to sit through where they said, all right, you know, it ego, but that's outdated. Jung, cognitive, you know, collective unconscious, if you get him at all. And then here's the behaviorists and then here's the cognitive therapy. And it's not that threatening of a concept. But when you get to a society level and you start talking about psychology, you're talking about who I am and how I think, which is not something that most people want to know or they would fight kind of with you about how people work and what the nature is, especially when you're of, of humanity is, especially when you're right. And and so you you get, you know, you're talking about Reagan and Thatcher coming in and that that kind of uh, period of austerity and, um, you know, disbanding community resources to focus more on kind of, you know, national, um, you know, personal freedom and, and national uh, uh, mythology, essentially. But one of the things that did is it pushed psychotherapy incredibly cognitive. Um, in a way that it still has not recovered from, because you, I think you, you're right. I mean, and for two reasons, I think. I mean, one, it, it was just appealing to that myth to say what I think is all that I am. There's nothing else to me. I really am the simple. I need to get the line needs to go up. I need to have a bigger army. I need to have a bigger bank account. We are all just what we do, not what we feel. And so hierarchy, hierarchical thinking, and you know that that's a very cognitive construct. But then also. You just had an explosion of corporations that kind of started to corporatize academia and healthcare in a way that those entities have not recovered from. And cognitive therapy is very useful. You know, if if my insurance company is going to say you've got six sessions to cure PTSD or else you need to just uh, take medicine, cognitive therapy is great well, there because there's not there's not insight and, and growth and, and these bigger things that are harder to turn into a number. I don't know. I'd well, be interested in what you think. Yeah, well, you're, you're working on several things at once, and let me see if I can help uh, us untangle them. Certainly, cognitive behavioral therapy uh, has its place. Um, there's a, a process going on over the course of the 20th century that we could describe as the democratization of access to psychotherapy that was once only available or to the really rich um, is now becoming increasingly available to more people. Um, so be it. Um, the, the, um, the bad news is cognitive behavioral therapy really um, narrows down what it means to be human problematically from what I can tell. Now, uh, mm -hmm. somebody sitting here from a cognitive behavioral perspective, uh, they and I would have an argument about that, and that's fine. It's good to have open debate about that. Um, well, some of well, them, they say they're doing CBT, but when you talk to them about what they're doing, it becomes very clearly that they've just realized how to use the CBT framework language to turn into relational therapy or to turn into psychodynamic therapy or even more of a Jungian, you know, self-discovered process. When you listen to the, what they're actually doing in the room, it isn't what Beck says to do in the CBT book. You know, that, that's what the based therapy is starting to uncover, <laughs> that actual what we're learning from science what we're learning from the research into psychotherapy uh, is that um, it is two human beings sitting together, reestablishing the primary attachment links that make growth and being open to learning possible. And mm -hmm. it's all based on relationship. Now, what does that imply out there in the political? Um, uh, I, I think what it implies is some need to go very slowly and not to imagine that we're going to suddenly um, get people that are extremely different from us to the table. Uh, I don't think we need to create one big tent that everybody's comfortable in. Uh, I, I think that we need to rebuild things a little more slowly than that. And each one of us will, will do that differently. You're doing it in the way by holding these podcasts. I do it by working with people on the political left who really 
um, are the ones holding my community together. They're the ones out there uh, finding candidates to run for the city council and raising money and putting up yard signs. And so I like to sit down with them and find out you know, how they're doing, what level of distress they're experiencing. Are they lonely? Um, uh, what would happen if they got attention from each other and not only held meetings that were based on who's going to put the yard signs up next week, but really paid attention to each other in a creative and more psychologically focused manner. And in that way, psychology is not just psychotherapy. It, it, whether you go behavioral or cognitive development or, uh, or um, emotion-focused or psych psychodynamic, all of those are psychology, but psychology is much bigger than psychotherapy. It's much bigger. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, it, it has to do with how we treat one another and that we can learn to apply psychology in our social change organizations to make them more of a home, to make them a place where people can go to experience belonging and connection. Mm -hmm. And to have that um, the center of activity that enables us to strengthen our social change organizations and bring about more accelerated change, specifically around climate change. I think that is the primary crisis that's driving all of the other horrors of our time. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the ironies with climate change is that um, we evolved to understand fairly simple systems. I mean, some of the smartest people can understand kind of maybe five layers of cause and effect in a complex system. Most people see one or two, you know. I felt bad when I was in that store. Well, you got a phone call that was bad. No, I'm just going to go ahead and associate that whole thing with feeling not good. You know, we don't we don't really want to interrogate those systems and pick them apart. Um, it just, it was evolutionarily beneficial for us to not have, I mean, we weren't, supposed to be supercomputers modeling incredibly complicated you know global phenomenon or just kind of supposed to be like red berry tastes good green berry makes you die <laughs> don't don't do that you know that was and and now we're sitting with something that is so infinitely complicated by the time everybody can readily apparently see the problem it maybe is too late you know well it, so, it is it is too late now um we don't know how bad it'll get we don't know how far uh uh the environment will uh, deteriorate. We don't know what level of social organization we will maintain. Let's cross our fingers and hope we really do have a chance. But what you're saying is really important. And we, I don't, we don't need suddenly people to handle much greater complexity. We need a story that holds all people together. Mm -hmm. We need a story that holds people together regardless of how much complexity they are comfortable with. A good story that's true. The story has to be true. It can't be, it can't go around uh, blaming other people for things they didn't do. So um, history feels good, Peter. Uh, what are you trying to, what are you trying to tell me here? Well, uh, we, we want a story that creates space for everybody to belong. But I'm good and they're bad. So you're uh, kind of well, making me feel not special. Um, you know, it, it's okay if you really need to blame people. I'll, I'll, I'll say, you know, you must be really mad. Tell me more. No. People need now, to be now listening. Now you're doing therapy. <laughs> well, sure. well um, I think good storytelling does that. Yeah. People used to sit around the campfire or in their, in their uh, uh, village centers, and they used to uh, dance and sing uh, in their churches. They would listen to the minister. Uh, and they would all have a place where they had a deep experience that they belonged to that group, and it would be mm -hmm. resonant and filled with feeling, and that's something that we can uh, recreate through um, uh, through the right type of community leadership that mm -hmm. that has training in psychological awareness. Well, that that's why I was wondering um, what you'd think of those Adam Curtis movies. I don't know if you got a chance to look at him, but. Um, I mean, what I've seen in my lifetime, and I mean, I don't go back to the 70s, you know, I'm born in 87, but what I've seen is, and it kind of switches, I mean, the left and the right go through a period of, um, you know, kind of being more uh, populist, but there's, what in, in America, what I've been forced to pick between in every election is a group of people that's telling a story that is compelling and interesting, but also a lie that isn't helpful and, and a misdiagnosis of the problem you know, usually scapegoating a group of people. 
And then you yep. have another party that is refusing to tell any story at all. Like they're telling me <laughs> to go to a website and memorize facts or this is just right or you should do it. And it's like, please stop. Like, and can, I mean, that, that's what you want to sit these people down and be like, look, the thing they teach you the first day of law school is that it doesn't matter what's true. What, what, what is relevant is can you tell a story that the jury, it makes sense to them. And so, you know, when I'm in college and, and there's all this, the beginning of, you know, you start to to hook, you know, old, basically old people into email for the first time, you know, and, and Obama's getting to be president and there's these interesting, you know, artifacts coming out of that. But it's like, you know, when I'm sitting there and I'm, you know, 89 and I, you know, the Rural Electrification Act brought a light to my house or whatever, and somebody says, well, Obama's a Muslim hologram. That's a compelling story to me. Okay. We need well, another one too. <laughs> I don't think I'm not interested in upsetting people. If if that's the story someone needs to believe, then God bless them. Really, truly. Um, there are enough we we only need to tell a story that brings a few people closer together. It won't take many. We need to Tell I us think that's it. It's, it's going to be a patchwork, like a quilt. It's going to be a community of small communities, not a giant community. Yes, no. it's not a big yeah. tent. We don't need a big tent. We're never going to get a big tent. What we need is to bring enough people from the 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 near right together with enough people from the near left, mm -hmm. together with enough uh, far lefties with medium lefties, wherever the breach is within mm -hmm. the left. Progressives and liberals, whatever the breach is between the moderates, whatever there's a current breach inside the Republican Party that's profound. It's just profound the breach within the Republican Party. And a part of me could say, you know, go ahead, you guys fight it out. I'm going to sit in the sidelines. But I really think that would be a mistake on my part. That breach mm -hmm. within the Republican Party is a breach inside me. And there, there's some intense emotional pull toward the deepest form of closing boundaries around small groups because of how scared and angry those people are and that should be respected and considered well i think they're scared and angry on you know kind of the, the liberal middle left too it's just they're scared and angry of a different thing um, i agree i mean i, I think the appeal of i mean i, I don't really think one is, I, I don't know i mean I, I think the appeal of like fox news is that like you know your cultural star is not waning it's not that like you're you're aging and your perspective is less relevant it's not that the world has changed since you were 13 it's just that the world is bad everyone's bad and you're good so just get really angry about this and this becomes this kind of addictive thing whereas it seems like cnn what they're saying is like oh look you know you don't need to change anything you don't need to do anything different you know other than maybe vote but like you this just know that you're correct. You have the right opinion. You're looking down on the right people. And, and while you're looking down on the right people, you're on the right side of history and you're not going to be embarrassed and you're not going to look foolish. And that's kind of the itch that that scratches. So we know that systems close boundaries using stories. And we know that uh, hate feels good. And the purpose of hate is to close boundaries around identity groups. We know all of that. Mm -hmm. So those of us that um, are trying to create something post-ideological. Uh, that's where psychology comes in. Psychology mm -hmm. is something that takes place in the clinic or the posh private practice office. Uh, that's mm -hmm. a psychology. But psychology also applies where those, where any narrowing of the truth can be addressed. And my, mm -hmm. my focus is I want to address the narrowing of the truth that takes place within the political left. That's where I have uh, mm -hmm. placed the lever to move the world. I want the political left to have more tolerance for the truth. And we, that would be nice. we on the left are not that good at the truth. We're not that good at science. We make all sorts of silly claims about how we're the ones that are devoted to science. And we're only really interested in the science we can cherry pick right off the low hanging fruit that already aligns with the ways we think. And what we need is a triple down commitment to a full range of science. And it will be very humbling because of the reasons you're listing around the way we tell ourselves stories that are arrogant. Where does that aversion to 
science not it's not even inversion it's like this ambivalent relationship that the kind of moderate you know middle left seems to have with science now where it's like i mean they had a like i don't know if it was a campaign or something it was a bumper sticker where everybody had this i effing love science things and you follow their linkedin or their facebook profile just a little bit and when they're done posting about harry potter and and, and star wars they're yelling at somebody who posted a research study because it doesn't agree with their worldview you know well it, it, we live in we live in really troubled times, and so um, it's so tempting to um, it's so tempting to find fault. And well, I, you know, I, I I love science does not mean I watched Neil deGrasse Tyson one time. You know, it just it that's not what that means. <laughs> I know, I know, but but here's the thing: um, hmm. what you said earlier about levels of complexity really applies here. That um, when I I'm having a bad day. Um, I'm going to be um, not as open to all of the complexities of what's true around me. One of them's going to get under my skin and I'm going to want to snap at my neighbor or I'm going to want to drive too fast on the freeway and be pissed at somebody cutting me off. Or I'm going to be a little bored by one of my clients instead of uh, kind, patient, uh, and empathic and direct. So I have real bad days, and mostly I have pretty good days. And on the mm -hmm. good days, then, then I don't get surprised by um, how hard it is to stay open to the full complexities of what's going on around us. Mm -hmm. You know, someone like Rachel Maddow, who uh, I assume still does television broadcasting, though I stopped watching her years ago. We haven't had she a has, cable ever, so I, I'm not really sure what the lineup looks like now. They they get they seem to get canceled every other year now, so you you got to refresh well, it. Whether it be her or a dozen others, there's just a way of cherry picking the facts and coming up with pretty pat arguments, and then displaying contempt for anybody that doesn't go along with that storyline and. Mm -hmm don't think people should indulge in contempt right now it's way too risky what well, but i, think I mean serious question that's a little bit go ahead i'm sorry there's a delay no, no. i didn't mean to interrupt you at all please finish oh that's okay all i was saying was we need more humility yeah and yeah there's nothing harder well there's so two two questions that i've got there you know one is a little bit more theoretical and then one's a little bit more practical you know one, have you you're, you're familiar with John Beebe, the Beebe model of the MBTI? Uh, John was on my dissertation committee. Oh yeah, and, uh, I, and I've published um, a review of his book. Uh, and at first, I didn't really get the M MBI, uh, the Myers Briggs, um, and mm -hmm. I was kind of polite to John um, because he, of how much he had helped me. And and then he was he caught on that I was only being polite and he nudged me and he said, well, Peter, you know, it's about consciousness. And mm -hmm. I go, Oh, cause he knew I was interested in consciousness. So I started reading closely and studying and I started catching on. It's, it works. It's an excellent system for yeah. understanding why I lean this way and you lean that way. Why we're, how we're different. Well, the, the BB model of the MBTI specifically is tells you it, it you can use that individual psychology that is setting you know inside of you to see how you're going to project that externally and i yes. think that because you can turn uh, you know individual psychology or group psychology into a cosmology basically that seems very useful for being able to understand society because yes. like for example in the bb model like i'm uh you know kind of a ei split you know i can split between ei and fj but every time i've ever taken it you know very strong nfj e INFJ, ENFJ, you know, split, but a hundred percent of my points are in intuition. You know, I'm just very bad at doing anything that's kind of detail oriented or, or uh, rote memorization hierarchical. I'll try and figure out how it works and you know, whatever. So it's like, that gets me in trouble, but that's what happens is, you know, I want to sit with the gray area of everything and look at these sides and what, whatever, but my shadow type is going to be the opposite of that. So when I'm in crisis, you know, like when I'm starting the clinic and I'm working 17 hours a day and, you know, stuff's going wrong at home and stuff's going wrong at work and I just don't have any more bandwidth, then I become extremely black and white and extremely, you know, judging, you know, thinking and it's the opposite of my personality. But I think societies function the same way, you know, I mean, there's a reason that you have kind of a right 
hierarchical snapback at the end of every kind of um you know introspective you know point in history you know the 80s come after the 70s for a reason i think i i think that's right and here's here's a way to to open it up historically and measure it in terms of hundreds of years uh we have the enlightenment that differentiates thinking and sensory experience and that leads to the scientific and industrial revolutions Maybe that's a blessing, maybe it's a horror, depending on who you ask and when. Certainly it's both. <clears throat> but then uh, what ends up happening is people become so lopsided with thinking and sensing that they lose the moral bearing of feeling. And they don't object to colonialism or raping Native peoples uh, mm -hmm. or killing Native peoples. When when um, Napoleon goes into Egypt in 1798, I think, and he gets a bunch of prisoners, the prisoners have dark skin and they're Egyptians. And normally what he'd do is he would repatriate uh, pr prisoners uh, if they were Austrian and white, but instead he mows them down, he butchers them. Uh, and so this is a, a underdeveloped moral function uh, that is haunting us moderns. Hmm. Uh, and so us in depth psychology are trying to do something about that one person at a time in the clinic. Um, and we have 30 years now into emotion focused therapy and relational therapy and really using feeling in a creative and powerful way. And in that way, we're working for the whole Western civilization trying to rebalance its lopsided intellect. Now, as soon as you get into the political world, the left becomes utterly blind and indulges in that thinking analysis that you described earlier as, you know, going to facts and not telling stories. Um, and so one of the things I do is I really try to help people on the political left uh, reuse the therapy they've been in for their private lives and bring that into their public way of engaging with one another so that we reconstitute feeling as a more in form a higher form of intelligence that we use socially now that's mm -hmm. something that we need to do to rebalance the typological imbalance that's been taking place for hundreds of years and it's possible to do and a depth psychologist can lead the way mm -hmm. Well, and I mean, the, the second part of that practical question when you're talking about the news is like, you know, in a system, can a system that is pretending to be objective because they put the two people that disagree about this thing in the room on either side of the screen and they fight, even though, well, actually, there's these other truths all over here. And you just pick these two people that have one difference to pretend that the truth is on, you know, two inches to the left or right of the middle. But like when you have that system and you're you're taking and and every corporation has a because you know we used to say you work for the people if you're on the news the government pays for the news hour and you're not able to go pick a side and work for a corporation you have to be objective if you say something that's a, a lie you get in trouble and then reagan chips away at those because he kind of wants to tell some stories about uh, iran contra and stuff and then clinton completely says you know you can actually own the news station just go ahead and buy it so you know you've got corporations that there's this whole cycle and you have the same general who's the four star general in the military who now is sitting on the board of the Lockheed Martin company or, you know, whatever, um, uh, military contractor that goes on the news to say, well, we, they won't let us, we need to cut loose. We need these bigger bombs. Look at this product. Look what it can do basically to do advertising for a government contractor. You know, and that's, I mean, there's a million different examples of that, but you have this kind of feedback loop of, um, these companies that own an interest in each other pretending that they're a news company when they're really not. I mean, is there a way to do what you're saying at all under that system? I mean, is the answer just to turn it off and have a conversation with your church or your school or your employees instead of listening to this stuff, you know? I, I like that idea. Um, you know, the, the scale that corporations now dominate, the way that the media and government um, and um, corporate um private uh for-profit corporations the way those three things are fused together is disastrous um, well, it can't change its mission i guess what i'm getting at is it cannot change its mission away from profit you can make a really good point to it you can have really good people in the organization you can you can 
basically like they're going to expand within the limits of what you let them do within regulation, but they, they can't, I mean, I, I was remember as a kid, there was like, um, I think it was Nike, but there was like some big protest that happened on the lawn of the CEO about how they were making all of these, um, you know, shoes for 10 cents an hour and child labor, whatever. And the CEO came out to the protesters and he was like, I agree with you. I don't want to do this, but if I do what you're saying, they'll fire me and they'll put another person there. I'm irrelevant. I'm a cog in this process. What you need to do is make it illegal because if you don't make it illegal, the next guy will just come in here and do it. And if I do the right in thing, order, I'll get fired. In order to make it illegal, uh, there are there are hundreds of people working every day, maybe thousands, on um, what it takes to have ethical corporate organizations. Mm -hmm. um, and those people make slight improvements. Uh, we're, I think we're living at a time where we've lost more ground than we've gained ground, but those things are hard to measure. And, and I would turn to the experts who are working on this, such as John Harrington, uh, who has worked on ethical corporate investing um, mm -hmm. with investments. And I would ask him, are we, are we making any headway? In the meantime, what I'm interested in is being able to bring about the political leadership who could really create the pressure on those larger institutional forms to make them more, uh, more empathic toward all of humanity, because corporations should, should really serve the human species and the ecosystem to make them uh, just, sustainable, um, such that uh, human beings get enough food to eat, uh, that they have education, that they uh, have a place in society where they belong, where there is ethical work for them to do. And these progressive values of mine will uh, are, are in the descent right now way too much. I'm going to assert my ideological values and help the political left win more elections by getting the heck out of its head and into its heart and learning how to lead with feeling and story. So we learn how to create enough cohesiveness on the left to win enough elections to get the political right to sit back down at the table to negotiate democracy's future rather than continuing to tear democracy apart. If we don't learn how to tell good, true stories, if we don't know- Or just stories at all. You know, I haven't seen a story from the Democratic Party for a long time. I mean, that. But I, but I think there is a tension between people who see themselves as kind of responsible or moderate or the adults in the room on the left and the people who can tell a story. I mean, there's almost a mistrust of somebody who can intuitively read the room and connect with a group of people from, you know, the, the central what the Democratic Party is, which goes back to the 60s. I mean, it goes back to Vietnam and the Chicago 7 and a lot of those guys. I mean, I, I mean, I, and I'm not trying to say that they I'm not I'm not picking anybody. This is a psychology point about their campaign. It's not a political one. I'm, I'm not really you know, publicly forward with my politics. But I mean, Obama basically used a lot of kind of empty things without committing to specific stuff, you know, but then when I watched Clinton's campaign, like she would get up and, and there was no story. It was like she would negotiate with herself. She would be like, well, somebody said we should do this, but also that's too far. So what if whatever? And it's like, this is a campaign rally. And, and but, you know, a lot of what you were told was, we'll go to the website and read the data on the page about the proposed bill, which is not oh, a narrative. It's not a story at all. I agree. I agree. And I'm working to do something about that. I, I'll be teaching a class next Friday to graduate students of depth psychology. And the story I'll be telling is of the history of humanity and the way we have uh, uh, evolved successfully and the our failures of evolution western civilization's successes and its failures and how that leads us to this moment mm -hmm. moment and what what are the opportunities of this moment and the fact that we have the left whether it be obama or biden or the clintons or elizabeth warren or bernie sanders uh, or dozens of dozens of other people who are successfully holding our democracy together, but they are problematically one-sided in terms of their intellect, and they quite don't quite know how to embody the feeling level and the intuition level to create the stories, really does create a place at the table for the depth psychologist to step forward and into the role of helping. 
Now, Ariana Huffington in 2010 said, um, enough analysis. We need more to hear from more of the political pundit Carl Jung. Mm -hmm. Now, if that was if that wasn't somebody pulling a chair out for us at the seat of cultural leadership, I don't know what was. The dilemma mm -hmm. is I'm part of the international Jungian community, and as much as there are a few dozen of us trying to step into that seat, we don't quite know how to come out of our psychological story enough to get those people, the politicos, to show up at our conferences. We depth psychologists are really ready to do therapy with the world, but the world has not shown up for its first session. <laughs> and and mm. that's on us depth psychologists for not getting out into social change organizations and talking to the politicos doing the trench work where they are. That's on us. Well, I mean, and kind of when I was asking about that failure to tell a story and, you know, just some of the like examples I've seen of that is, like, don't you think that there is an inferiority complex beneath living in your head that much? That there's a fear of being, well, I won't look serious, or I won't look smart, or I won't look presidential, or I, I, like, if I show any intuition, if I show any authenticity, if I even say what I believe in a way that isn't, you know, put the word salad, then well, let's, I'm going to get in let's trouble, do you know? Let's, let's do something about that. Uh, so back about, I mean, do you, ago, do you think that that's maybe that's wrong? I mean, I, I'm what I'm asking about is a generation that's kind of older than me. I mean, you know, it's like, you know, those those do you, do you see that trend, especially in the kind of liberal left of why well, I have well, to. There's a reason for it and we can do something about it. So let's do mm -hmm. something about it. Twenty five mm -hmm. years ago, I did some research and I got a bunch of folks that are activists and leaders from the political left. And I sat them down and we talked about it. Um, and one of the things that came out is that this prejudice against feeling. Mm -hmm. uh, and one woman who was at the, on the city council at the time spoke in the research uh, circle about the way that she had been attacked at a public meeting and she had to go in the back room to cry because she couldn't dare show feeling in public. Well, mm -hmm. that's I learned that 25 years ago, and since then I've been helping community leaders and psychotherapists to reflect on that reality mm -hmm. and to begin the work of doing something about it through training. We, we can train ourselves up. There, mm -hmm. are, there are tens of thousands of good therapists around the country, maybe a hundred thousand, maybe a million, I don't know, and all of them could help community leaders develop their emotional intelligence and learn how to use it in public. I call that the development of a very simple public emotional intelligence. And once the left catches on to this, they will win more elections. Yeah. And, and there, there is, there are some politicos who are, who are starting to do this more, um, but it's really hard. People who are more right identified, um, identify with different values than those of us who are left-leaning. And the values they identify with are solid, important, good values. And those of yeah. us that are more liberal, the values we emphasize are different. And mm -hmm. we serve a purpose and people on the right serve a purpose. And in a healthy democracy, the, the tension between the right and the left leads to good things. Now, our polarization has deteriorated the democratic process to the point where we are at risk for losing our democracy. And those of us on the left, I think we need to stop putting the right down in our overly simplified manner. Yeah. Uh, and those of us on the left really do, as you've said, need to learn how to tell effective stories that really are motivating and moving. Uh, and there are some people on the left who are better at that than others. Um, well, and when you're, and I think that I mean, what Freud called it the narcissism of petty differences. But what you have a ton on the left is people fighting about semantics, about language, about aesthetics. And I, oh, I don't was, like people fighting about aesthetics at all. I mean, 
there was just a eight year period where people were yelling like, well, I think the president should have bad manners. I think the president should have good manners. And I was like, I care about how many people are starving. I care about how much healthcare exists. I care about what our planet looks like. I care about how much money is going to this and not that. You know, I, I don't really care if he's reading Emily Post or not. Um, that was well just said. me. I, I really like how you put that. Well, I think it's an inevitable process if you take away all the levers of power and you say, okay, well, it's it's too far to do this because that alienates this part of the Big Tent Democratic Party. Well, it's too far to do that because we that's not reasonable anymore. We have corporate control. It's not the 70s. So there's no there's no power that you have. What's left other than the way things look and the way they sound? You know, because well, as there's less and less things that we're allowed to expect the president to do or the party to do, well, then the there's less and less. Political correctness is what uh, is killing the left. Uh, and uh, the division into smaller and smaller identity groups, uh, Freud's narcissism of small differences, uh, uh, is a result of not having a shared story that catalyzes our movement um, toward engaging the political right in a way that brings everybody back to the table to negotiate mm -hmm. our shared future. We need a story that is about the human species shared future on earth that accounts for where we will be in seven generations. Uh, the fact that species are dying off, the fact that glaciers are falling into the ocean, the fact that um, some of our children aren't going to have children because they don't think it's ethical to bring children into the world right now. Uh, we got to have a story that accounts for all of that. Mm -hmm. I happen to think the origin of that story needs to be on the political left going post-ideological and really expanding its psychological range to stop demonizing, to withdraw its projections, and to cohere a more potent center on the left. But that's because that's where I want to do my work. I'm sure there's equally important work to do on the right. Well, and, and some of, I mean, it's not, I'm not trying to punch left or right. I mean, what I'm, what I'm saying, I think more broadly is related to that is that I think that change begins at the local level. And then if you have healthier local communities and you, you have a, you begin to faster have a network of those communities and we try and change all this stuff from the top down, like, you know, whoever's in charge of the whole system or the president's going to come in and um, change it. And they, they do have some power, but I think that if you're going to make real progress in the direction that you're talking about, to do that without a community of just you know somebody online posting about it without any friends without a church without a secular organization without um you know work community without any kind of local community is is something that just doesn't work and we have forgotten that as we become more digital really i agree with you um one of the things that um is happening in my community two friends of mine um john crowley and um and Lou, I always have a hard time with his last name. Last name, uh, um, and so now I'm embarrassed. But uh, anyhow, Lou and John hold something called Petaluma uh, uh, conversations at the local library, and they show up with a handful of lay um, trainers, uh, and they they put a political issue on a card and set that card on a table. And then people from the community show up. Um, they've been doing this for years. And they pick which issue, which table they want to sit at. And at each table, there's a trainer. And they take turns talking. And when one person talks for two or three minutes, the next person reflects what they heard before they say their piece. Mm. It's and profound. The inner telephone game. Yeah, well, it's profound. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't get to stand up and and say my opinions until I've demonstrated that I listened really closely to the last person who spoke. That's pretty brilliant. It's brilliant. It truly is. Um, uh, uh, Lou is also helping the local, he helped start the local Braver Angels uh, organization chapter, and they bring red and blue citizens together and, and step them through um, highly psychologically disciplined practices of how to listen and how to communicate across the red-blue difference. And bless his heart for doing that. I don't think I have the stomach for that. Um, and John is also part of a 
organization called Petaluma Tomorrow, uh, no, Petaluma, Cool Petaluma, that got a million dollar grant to help Petaluma lower its carbon, carbon footprint. And they're going neighborhood by neighborhood and training volunteers in every neighborhood as to how to talk to their neighbor about uh, what practices will lower each neighborhood's carbon footprint. Mm-hmm. And they're using, uh, neither John nor Lou are psychotherapists. Uh, Lou's a trained mediator and John's background is in computer engineering. And they have trained themselves in reflective listening practices and they're bringing them those into their social change organizations. This, if there is a future, this is one of the ways it will unfold through those of us with psychological training, getting more active in our communities and helping our communities develop the tolerance, the patience and the humility that they need to work out these differences. And Mm -hmm. it is possible and it is happening. Mm -hmm. Right. And there, there was a a guy um, who used to do in like the early two thousands, all all of this, uh, like I'm blanking on the name because he was, he was a, um, like an activist and kind of a political artist, but he he would uh, go to these communities, these small towns and talk about like climate change and nuclear weapons and the amount of uh, risk and the amount of uh, money. And, you know, he would kind of get shouted down. And so then he quit doing it and he would go back to the same towns and he thought the people would kind of recognize him and they didn't. And he would do a different um, project and be like, okay, look, you, this town has $4 million that it just gets, you know, this County. What do you do with it every year you get four million dollars and they're like oh we'll build a school we'll do this whatever and he would come back and be like okay that's great but you already spent it you can't build a school every year what are you going to do with the four million dollars next year and they're like well i mean we could do roads and he's like okay that's infrastructure so that's gone too you've already done it you don't need to do that for another 20 years what do you do with the four million dollars? and then they would start being like what is this money coming from and he's like well you know we have the uh, nuclear capacity to blow up the world 30 times but even if we need to we really just need to blow it up once so like if you just got rid of the ability to blow up the world you know 29 x redundant times you know you just have all this extra money um so anyway what would you spend it with and then they get angry and they're like what why do we do we could have four million dollars like and and then the people were like yelling at him you know and i think that kind of appeal to community and the direct effect of this stuff which is why i think when you start saying you know values disconnected from the material that's where they're dangerous you know something like that is making such a direct connection you know to the heartstrings and not the and not the you know our ego values I like the idea. I like the idea of, um, you know, appealing to the pocketbook, obviously, but also just um, having communities reflect on what their needs are and uh, seeing that uh, the way we currently are organized and the values that we're currently organized by are hangovers from a past time. So whether in psychotherapy, you had to help somebody to have insights about how their childhood affects their current life and their current relationships, or if you help a community do the same, uh, these things are possible and it can free up energy or it can free up money or both. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and you're, you're having somebody immediately participate in a better a vision of how the world could be better without telling them that, you know, and which seems condescending or there's reaction to it. Here, they're just envisioning, what if I had $4 million? What does that look like for my kids? What does that look like for the road? What does that look like for whatever? Whereas, you know, because they're feeling it. And I think one of the places where you get the most pushback left and right is if you just say, hey, what if the other side's not that terrible? Um, what if what if the other side's solution like is, is not that terrible? It's just that neither one is really that great. What if we could just slightly believe in a better possible world? Such a negative reaction to that. They're like, why are you letting the Democrats off the hook? Why are you letting the Republicans off the hook? You must secretly be working for them or you must be you must not that- know this list of terrible facts I found on Facebook. And it's like. No, I'm just saying, like, maybe there's a slightly better way to do things. And we have Americans have an immediate angry, negative reaction to that. Hold hold on, hold on, hold on. I don't think that's true enough to follow. Some people do react that way. So your your statement is true, but it's also a caricature. And I find as a caricature, it goes too far. Because it's also true that I find when I talk to people that if I'm patient, and I don't have to be patient that long, but when I'm patient, people are willing to de-escalate conversations. Mm-hmm. People are willing to talk more about where they're coming from emotionally. And mm-hmm. that gives me a great deal of hope that 
people want to find the best in each other when they are attended to effectively. And so what I do is I train community leaders and budding therapists how to use the psychotherapy skills that work so well to create healing from psychopathological suffering, but also work to create the type of relationships we need in our communities. And I have a great deal of faith in that. That yeah. when people are listened to, they stop pointing fingers at others. Mm -hmm. Well, and I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that I have no faith or respect for humanity. I mean, a lot of what I'm talking about is a, an increasingly large, you know, maybe it's a minority, but it's increasingly getting larger group of very politically reactive Americans um, well, a, that are very emotional and very upset. And I, but th those people are going to be incredibly important if you're going to build the project you're talking about. And so uh, kind of what I'm thinking about is how do you reach them? You know? Um, well, I'll tell you, I, I think I know um, when there's polarization, you want to tell everybody within arm's reach, mm -hmm. only the people that are within your arm's reach. Mm -hmm. Don't try to tell, don't try to imagine no. a single story for everybody, mm -hmm. but those people you can reach, mm -hmm. whether it's this podcast in your neighborhood, in your clinic or wherever, those people that you can reach out to help them see that it's normal to polarize it's mm -hmm. normal to close boundaries when you're distressed and help them shift the conversation to talk in a new way about their own distress mm -hmm. well i think it one of the ways go ahead work it works well, I mean, the way that I've found to do that, which I mean, I guess is going to be people that are, you know, my age and younger is by being a little bit, um, having a little bit of a sense of humor, maybe being a slightly self-deprecating about my politics, other people's politics, kind of the silliness of that, which is sort of what I'm trying to do. And in and, and sitting with that, people withdraw the projection, you know, yes. of, they yes. withdraw the projection of the shadow over here and the grandiose, wonderful savior, daddy, mommy over here. And and so I'm not, you know, and I, I think some of that, especially when you're dealing with younger generations, I mean, I, I'm not trying to make fun of it, what anybody thinks or make them feel bad. Just saying like, I don't know, we get really upset and turn blue in the face and yell and we cry about it and whatever. It's kind of stupid. Like, can we just have a little bit of a sense of humor, you know, that the have some humor about how we think in order to uh, feel a little bit less important, you know? Joel, I'm with, I'm with you, and um, I'm curious about how we wind wind this conversation up. What what would, because at this point, I'm, I need to go have some breakfast. Sure, no. We really, really appreciate your time. It's been fascinating talking to you, and um, anything that you kind of want to close on or promote, I'll definitely throw in the show notes of the show, and um, we just, uh, I don't know, it's it's really it's really neat to, to kind of have two different sets of language or two different ideological lenses and, and see and see how those come together. So I always appreciate conversations like this one. Well, I think just in closing, I think the work is to learn how to use a psychological perspective or a psychological attitude in a more expansive way to really be able to account for the social and the political, but not to do it solely in the name of, of critiquing the failures of any ideology. Um, it we, Those of us that have psychological and political training are responsible for articulating um, a, a means to an end. We're responsible for identifying the social and political problems and the mental health issues linked to them that are currently haunting us and doing more than criticize. We're actually responsible for developing a remedy, uh, mm -hmm. for developing a, a, a shared practice that can take place in the clinic or the private practice office or the classroom, or the city council chamber, or the dining room table, or in the national news um, media, uh, or between nations. We're responsible yeah. for articulating a story that is able to be told readily and somewhat easily in all of those cases, places, about our shared humanity, and about now is the time to bring ourselves back together through sacrifice and some experience of shared duty and humility for the sake of what's happening in the world, for the sake of pulling ourselves back from the brink to give us a little breathing room and to buy us some time.
so that we can really see the extent to which there are solutions to our problem and they begin with the right effective psychological story that is about all of us mm. and all working together yeah well th thank you so much for your time peter that's beautiful <laughs>